My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast and our 50th episode, Between Two Worlds. In this episode, we explore the end of the 12th dynasty and the way Egyptians processed grief through traumatic periods of their lives. With the death of the dynasty's last ruler and the text known as the Man Who Was Tired of Life, we see Egyptians at their lowest political and personal points, with all that that tells us of their life and their beliefs. This episode is brought to you by Sam and Adam for their generous contributions early in July. Thank you very much, folks. Your contribution helps us keep the podcast servers running and pays for that pesky research time, which is fueled primarily by coffee and ballpoint pens. To all of my listeners, thank you for following and enjoy our 50th episode. The year is 1790 BCE, and Ma'a Herure Amenemhat IV is in the last months of his life. He had been made king by the late Amenemhat III, despite sharing no blood relationship to the old ruler. In many ways, Ma'a Herure was not, strictly speaking, the best contender for the throne. That distinction would fall to a woman named Neferu Sobek, whose name translates to Sobek is beautiful. She was daughter of Amenemhat III, and sister of the illustrious Neferu Ta, to whom Amenemhat had intended to pass the kingship before her untimely death. With his first choice gone, and his other daughter perhaps too young for power, Amenemhat III had been forced to choose a non-royal man, Ma'akherure, as his new heir. But now Ma'akherure was about to die, and Neferu Sobek's time had come. As soon as the ruler died, she struck quickly and took power for herself. By doing so, she became the first woman in Egyptian history that we can absolutely, assuredly, 100% certainly say, ruled as a king. There had been other supremely powerful women earlier in Egyptian history. Women like Kentikaus I and II, or Merinith, or Ankh Esenpepi. But Neferu Sobek was having none of that genuine power without the image. She was going full king, with no regrets. Doing this proved to be relatively simple. All it took was a dedicated public image that ignored her predecessor and focused on her father. Neferu Sobek's artistic and architectural legacy was completely connected with that of Amenemhat III. She made contributions to his tomb at Hawara, and wherever possible inscribed her name directly next to his, ignoring the king that had reigned between them. Was this aggressive branding? political calculation, or both. Whatever the case, Neferu Sobek seems to have had no interest in acknowledging her stepbrother Ma'aherure. She makes no mention of him on the few monuments she inscribed, and even official documents referred to her exclusively as daughter of the king. So all up, 
she was gunning hard on the Amenemhat III track. There was a difficulty here though, because when he died, Amenemhat IV had left behind at least two natural-born sons. These were now rivals to Neferu's Sobek, and since she did not have a son of her own, they were a threat to the continuation of Amenemhat III's bloodline. Or at least, they were only a threat until somebody had the good sense to suggest a marriage of convenience. If one of these sons had married the ruling queen, the two parties could have been united and the Twelfth Dynasty might have continued for much longer. Sadly, Neferu Sobek would not live long enough to make anything of the opportunity. She died after less than four years on the throne. If there was ever a reign that I suspect ended prematurely, it's the reign of Neferu Sobek. She would have been young when she came to power, probably not even 20 years old. But within less than four years, she was dead without heir, and the crown passed back into the hands of the family which had produced Ma'aherure. To me, that's suspicious. But maybe I'm reading too much into it. There are a hundred ways an individual could die unexpectedly in the ancient world, and Neferu Sobek would not have been the first young, healthy ruler to take a sudden turn for the worse. Either way, she died with no heir, having ruled Egypt for three years, ten months, and twenty-four days. An unusually specific set of dates that we are told on a papyrus king list. Whether it was natural causes or murder is now a moot point. Neferu Sobek failed to continue the bloodline and political lineage of her father. The result was that 205 years after Amenemhat I took power in a civil war, the 12th dynasty, probably the most accomplished dynasty in Egyptian history so far, came to its end. They had expanded Egypt's political power, increased trade, and established the foundations for some of Egypt's most significant temple centres. They had also overseen the greatest flowering of literary and artistic output in history. For our own part, we have spent more time with the 12th dynasty than for any other group, a full 17 episodes. And yet, I still feel like we have only scratched the surface. There are stories, tombs, artistic pieces, and small detailed records that I would have loved to include. But time is always against us, and we must keep moving forward no matter how slowly we try to go. That being said, I'm going to take the opportunity to pause the narrative for a few minutes, and recount a story that was popular during this period. While it probably dates from the middle of Dynasty 12, I feel that it accurately captures on a personal level some of the distresses that might have been going on at the political level. The tale is known as the dispute between a man and his bar, or the man who was tired of life. It is a tale of anxiety, depression, and inner conflict, as a man wrestles with the sense that he is not really alive, but not yet ready to die. In this sense, the man is between two worlds, in a way that I think ties in nicely to the overall dissolution of the 12th dynasty itself. Egypt is now entering into a new phase of its cultural development, in which the introspection of the past is replaced by a new internationalism. For some, this is going to be a very traumatic experience. The story of the man and his bar survives on just one manuscript, so we are lucky to have it at all. Unfortunately, we're also hamstrung by this because the text is incomplete. On top of that, it is extremely difficult to understand, not because of its language, but because the analogies its characters use to describe their situation are so different from ours. 
The problem is that a lot of it is literally lost in translation. The text, as it survives, begins in the middle of the story. And the basic premise is this. An Egyptian man is in the middle of a depressive episode, and fears that his soul, or ba, is wishing to die. In order to counsel himself, he begins to argue against his own soul, advocating for a different attitude. The two disagree, with the ba suggesting that they should die in order to get answers from the gods about the ways and matters of life. The man refuses, arguing that death is merely a continuation of life, and that he will therefore find no joy there either. Ultimately, it ends with no resolution. Quote, I, the man, opened my mouth to my ba to answer the things that it had said. I said, this is too much for me today, that even my soul does not agree with me. This is too great for exaggeration. It is as though my soul were deserting me. My ba will not go. It will attend to me. I will keep my ba within my body with a net. It shall not be able to flee on a painful day. My ba misleads me, but I do not listen to it. It drags me towards death before I approach it naturally. It casts me on fire so as to burn me. End quote. I feel for this man. Whether he is fictional or drawn from a particular personal experience by the scribe, he is clearly in the depths of a very deep depression. One might suggest that he is even suicidal, and has rationalized his terror in the form of a debate with his very soul. You can hear his anguish as he feels like he is on fire and that he must restrain his inner yearning for death on a very personal level, and through the invocation of the gods. Quote, My ba, too ignorant to silence pain in life, leads me towards death before I come to it naturally. Life is a passage. Trees fall. Tread on the evil in life and quash my misery. May Thoth judge me, he who appeases the gods. May Khonsu defend me, he who writes truth. May Ray hear my speech, he who commands the solar bark, and may Isedes defend me in the sacred hall of the dead. End quote. If it sounds intensely psychological and philosophical, you're not wrong. This is one of the most challenging texts surviving from Egypt. It seems that every year at least some new academic article comes out offering an interpretation of the story, or clarifying the translation. And we still just do not know exactly what all of its content means. The reason for this, I think, is only partly due to its incompleteness. For me, the problem lies more in the fact that the author describes the emotions his character is feeling, and the analogies he uses to explore this. In the modern era, we have come to treat depression from two perspectives. There's the clinical and the spiritual. In one, depression is seen as a chemical imbalance in the brain which triggers feelings of helplessness and loneliness. These are often considered to be exaggerated, not conforming to physical reality. In the spiritual perspective, depression is seen as a winter, a time in which our soul is drained or harmed by negative influences within our lives and in our attitudes. Depending on your learning and the environment in which you live, you will probably subscribe to one of these more than the other. For many Egyptologists who live in a world of scientific rationalism, empiricism, and academic atheism, by which I mean the idea that beliefs, however personal, should be excluded from the analytical study of history, 
the balance does skew a bit towards the clinical. As a result, the tale of the man in his bar might be, quite simply, untranslatable for many scholars. We can get the gist of what the Egyptian man is saying, but the true meaning, the heartfelt import of his words, might forever be lost because the analogies he uses simply aren't the ones we would consider using were we in this situation. A case in point, the bar responds to the man's words and says, quote, My soul opened its mouth to me that it might answer what I had said. If you think of burial, it is a sad matter. It is a bringer of weeping through making a man miserable. It is taking a man from his house, he being cast upon the high ground. Never again will you go up on the high ground that you might see the sun. Those who built in granite and constructed halls and goodly pyramids with fine work, when the builders became gods, their stelae were destroyed, like the weary ones who died on the riverbank through lack of a survivor, the flood having taken its toll, and the sun, likewise, to whom talk the fishes. Listen to me. Behold, it is good for men to hear. Follow the happy day and forget care. That particular section might be slightly garbled by damage to the papyrus, but the bar uses a very strange mixture of arguments to convince the man of his point. He alludes to long-dead builders of legend, probably those who built the pyramids and the great temples, whose memory is now like those who had died anonymously on the riverbank. Their words, or specifically their stelae, are smashed and gone, and yet, somehow, the bar wants to suggest to the man that burial is not a sad matter. The bar's point is, quite frankly, oddly convoluted. It doesn't make a lot of sense. He wants the man to come with him into death, but provides a litany of reasons which you might take as good reasons not to. Reasons like the fact that you will be forgotten, or that others have it so much worse than you do. Quote, A peasant ploughed his plot, and loaded his harvest aboard a ship, towing it when his time of festival drew near. Then he saw the coming of the darkness of the northerly wind, for he was vigilant in the boat when the sun set. He escaped with his wife and children, but came to grief on a lake infested by night with crocodiles. At last he sat down and broke his silence, saying, I weep not for yonder mother, who has no more going forth from the west. I sorrow rather for her children, broken in the egg, who have looked in the face of the crocodile god before they have lived. That's a fairly simple tale. The peasant has lost loved ones in the past, but does not weep so much for his wife, who lived a full life, but for the children who were killed before they were even born. But the Ba's second argument is even less helpful and kind of tells the Egyptian that he is being a big baby, and he should toughen up. Quote, A peasant asked for a meal of meat, and his wife said to him, There is only bread for supper. He went out to rage for a moment, and returned to his house raging as if he were an ape. His wife reasoned with him, but he would not listen to her. He beat her, and the bystanders were helpless. This one doesn't make a lot of sense as an argument against living or dying. The Egyptian has not, as far as we know of, thrown a tantrum or beaten his wife. He's simply dejected by life, but clinging to the idea that death is not the answer just yet. So whatever the bar is getting at here, it has been lost in translation. One of those situations, I think, where we simply can't quite understand the reason for the analogy. For the Egyptian as well, this was not what he was worried about. Quote, 
I opened my mouth to my soul, that I might answer what it had said. Behold, my name is detested more than the smell of vultures on a summer's day when the sky is hot. Behold, more than the smell of ducks, more than the smell of fishermen, more than the creeks of the marshes where they have fished. Behold, my name is detested more than a woman about whom lies are told to a man. Behold, my name is detested more than a sturdy child of whom it is said, he actually belongs to his father's rival. Behold, my name is detested more than a town belonging to the king, which mutters sedition when his back is turned. To whom can I speak today? Brothers are evil, and the friends of today are unlovable. Hearts are rapacious, and everyone takes his neighbor's goods. Gentleness has perished, and the violent man has come down upon everyone. Men are contented with evil, and goodness is neglected everywhere. Men plunder. The wrongdoer is an intimate friend, and the brother with one whom used to act has become an enemy. No one remembers the past, and no one now helps him who used to do good. End quote. I would say the Egyptian refutes the bar pretty thoroughly here, showing that his concerns are not just personal, they are also concerns about the society in which he lives. He complains of moral degradation and the decay of good values. Brothers are now divided, and men are rapacious, satisfied with wealth rather than benevolence or justice. Compared with that, who could blame a heart for being despondent? Again, this point is somewhat confusing in terms of his actual depression, because of the two narrators in this story, the Egyptian is the one arguing that he should keep on living, rather than die. It is the bar that wants to abandon everything and go into the West, but both of them provide really convoluted arguments that are kind of 50% supportive and 50% harmful of their own point. Perhaps there's a reason for that. Perhaps the indecisiveness of the narrator's point of view is an attempt to reflect the uncertainty of our own hearts during moments of crisis. You could argue, I think without stretching the point, that the narrative is complex because human hearts and minds are complex. We are rarely free of doubt, and as committed as we may be to our path, we are hopefully always aware that there is an alternative. And sometimes you find yourself wandering the streets, arguing back and forth in your head, without even realizing what you're doing. Maybe that's what's going on here. The man is arguing with his bar, but also with himself. Remember, the bar is both separate from and part of a human soul and should be considered as much a part of the Egyptian's internal monologue as a separate entity speaking to him. But still, I for one am flummoxed. Who is arguing for what, and what is their motivation? Do we pay more attention to the man who is miserable but holding on to life, or the bar who is philosophical but suicidal? Before we make our minds up, the two have some parting remarks. Quote, To whom can I, the Egyptian, speak today? There is no truly contented man, and the person who once walked with him no longer exists. I am heavy laden with trouble, through lack of an intimate friend. The wrong which roams the earth, there is no end to it. Death is in my sight today, like going out of doors after prison, like the smell of myrrh, like the perfume of lotuses, or the clearing of the sky, like a man who yearns for something which he does not quite know. Death is in my sight today, as when a man desires to see home when he has spent many years in captivity. Truly, he who is in the West will be a living God, punishing the wrongdoer. Verily, 
He who is in the west will be one who stands in the boat of Ray, causing wonderful things to be given for the temples. Verily, he who is in the west will be a sage, who will not be prevented from appealing to Ray when he speaks. End quote. That is the last we hear from the Egyptian, and again his point is convoluted. He laments the miseries of his depression, and says that death is now within his sight, as something to be welcomed. He extols the virtues of those who are in the West, and how blessed the Eternal Ones are. Which all sounds like he's come to the conclusion that maybe, just maybe, the Bar is actually right. But then we get this, quote, What my soul said to me, Cast complaint upon the peg, my brother. Make an offering on the brazier, and cleave to your life, as I have said. Desire me here, thrust the West aside, but desire that you may attain the West when your body goes to earth, that I may alight after you are weary. Then we will make an abode together. Again, what? We just spent the whole text in the middle of a debate between the suicidal bar and the miserable but tenacious Egyptian, and yet at the very end of the text they both flip and decide to agree with the other's original point. If this isn't the worst case of indecision in Egyptian history, I don't know what is. But thank heavens it's over, for the man and the bar ranks, by far, as the most inexplicable and baffling of Egyptian texts. To date, no scholar has satisfactorily cracked it, and until a new copy of the text is found, perhaps one with the actual beginning of the story, we will never know just what the fundamental point really is. You can take it either as a life-affirming text, which recognises that all beings go to the West in their own time, regardless of how they feel in their here and now, or you can see it as the most convoluted philosophical dialogue this side of St. Augustine. Either way, the text should never be used to counsel the depressed, or the suicidal. At best, it is a beautiful but opaque window into the mind of an ancient Egyptian experiencing a depressive episode. The problem, simply, is that whether through our own learned attitudes or the over-complexity of the writer's arguments, the text remains totally hostile to deep emotional understanding. And maybe, just maybe, that's the way it's meant to be. Life is complex. It does not follow rules, or patterns, or conceptions of order. It might have some patterns, but those patterns can be broken as easily as a drop of water sending ripples, or a butterfly flapping its wings. Either way, life remains a disorderly, baffling roller coaster of emotions, some of which send us to the heights of inspiration and joy, and others which take us into the depths of despair. It is the depths of despair, I suspect, that Neferu Sobek experienced in 1776, when she died after three years, ten months, and twenty-four days of the throne. Having failed, or chosen not, to unite with the household of Ma'aherure, she had also spelled the end of the 12th dynasty lineage. And when she died without heir, the throne passed to a man named Sobek Hotep, whom we will meet in the next episode. 205 years after Amenemhat I took power in a civil war, the greatest period of political, cultural, and economic stability in Egypt's history so far is coming to its end. What begins now is a slow slide into a turbulent, violent, and yet incredibly dynamic period of the country's history, as new social groups begin to exert their influence, and the land of Egypt changes forever.
History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.